turn in our Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 41. Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We'll be studying chapters 39, uh, 38, 39, and 40 tonight. You might read those ahead of time before you come this evening. And uh, so you say, why are we studying something from chapter 41? Because uh, we're not legalists. We do whatever we want to do around here. And uh, actually, I felt like the Lord wanted me to go into 41, but I knew we wouldn't get through four chapters tonight. So it's just reality that we're dealing with here. So if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men have Bibles that are coming up the aisles right now. And if you get their attention by waving, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to the passage we're studying uh, this morning so you can read the Word of God and uh, hear it as well. Please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Three verses in Isaiah chapter 41. We'll pick it up in verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for being the God that you are. We didn't know what kind of a God we would find at the end of our search in life. And we're thankful that the God at the end of that search was you. We love everything about you. We're thankful for everything about you. Everything we know about you and we learn about you produces praise in our hearts, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that what you begin in our lives, you'll be faithful to bring to completion. And Lord, we ask that you'd freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit right now and give us ears to hear the voice of your Spirit through your word this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah... The book takes a dramatic turn. In chapters 1 through 39, it's filled with messages of condemnation and judgment to the southern kingdom of Judah. These were God's people. And this condemnation and judgment that God proceeded to declare to them for 39 chapters was because of their unwillingness to turn from their sin and from their rebellion against God and from their idolatry. And ultimately, 100 years after these prophecies were given by Isaiah, the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated and taken captive by Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. They were taken to Babylonia in captivity for 70 years as a consequence of their sin. And then in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah writes not supremely to his Jewish contemporaries who were alive in the city of Jerusalem at the time that he was, 
But these chapters were written to the Jews who would return ultimately from Babylon to Israel to come back into the land 150 years or so into the future. And the message of these chapters is one of great comfort and great encouragement to them in their repentant state. And these chapters have much to say, not only to these Jews 750 years before Christ, but they have much to say to the righteous among God's people all down through the ages until the end of the age, including us as Christians today. To these Jews, God had been nothing but good to them, his people. He had called an obscure, otherwise unknown man by the name of Abram, ultimately to become named Abraham, to leave his home in Ur of the Chaldees, a region we now know, we know today as Iraq, and to depart from that land of the Chaldeans and to depart to come to the land of Canaan. And he sent Abraham with a promise recorded in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and that he would bless the whole world through his descendants, through the Jews. And God has blessed the whole world through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and blessed the world through the Jews in many, many ways. But chief among them, as Paul brings out, in Romans chapter 3, is that through the Jews, God brought into the world the book that sits on your lap right now. He blessed the world with the Jewish scriptures. And second, and then supremely, God promised that through, uh, through the Jews, that he would bring through that Jewish bloodline, he would provide the world with a Messiah and with a Savior. And so Abram makes his way from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan, ultimately to give birth to the Jewish patriarch Isaac, his son, who would then give birth to the next Jewish patriarch by the name of Jacob. But after some 215 years after making this promise to Abraham, during the time of Jacob, the children of Israel number but 70 people made up of Jacob's 12 sons, their wives, their children, a good-sized family to be sure, a good-sized clan to be sure, but hardly the nation that God had promised to make of them. And then at the time of Jacob, a great famine came into the Middle East that engulfed all of Egypt, all of Canaan, and most of the Middle East and a famine that threatened to wipe out Jacob and his entire family, and most importantly and most dangerously, as a result, all of the promises that God had given to them and promised to bring into the world through them. But then just at the right moment, Jacob was invited by 
uh, Pharaoh and by Joseph, one of uh, Jacob's sons, to come into Egypt and to be sustained through the famine. And they stayed not only through the remaining several years of the famine in Egypt, but they stayed there for the next 400 years. And during that time, within the incubator of Egypt, they grew numerically from a clan, a glorified family of 70 individuals to now number and become a great nation, numbering in the multiplied millions. And then having been having made a great nation of them within the relative safety of Egypt, God delivered them from Egypt in what is known as the Exodus, the great exit that he performed to bring them out of Egypt. And what an exit it was, delivered by way of ten great miracles or plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt in order to secure his people from the bondage of Egypt, the water being turned into blood, and the frogs and the lice and the flies and the pestilence upon the livestock and the boils and the thunderstorm of hail and fire, the locusts, the darkness, and ultimately the death of the firstborn throughout all of the land. And all of that was a picture, an Old Testament picture of New Testament redemption and salvation. As Jesus has delivered and saved and redeemed every Christian from the greater bondage than the bondage of Egypt, from the bondage of sin, and he has done so by a greater miracle than the ten miracles that he laid out upon the nation of Egypt. He has done it through the miracle found in his death and his burial and his resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of the very Son of God. And so they move from the bondage of Egypt into Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey, where they discovered not only life, but in the words of Jesus, life more abundantly. In the words of both Moses and Joshua, it was a land of large and beautiful cities which they did not build, houses full of good things which they did not fill, hewn out wells which they did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which they did not plant, their bellies and the bellies of their children at a time in human history when no one took that for granted. Their bullies, bellies were consistently full. They were safe from all of their enemies all around. And on and on and on we could go delineating God's goodness to them. And God had been nothing but good, good, good to the Jewish people as he is to all of his people. You've heard the old saying, and sometimes it can seem a little corny to some people, but it's the truth. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. And that's what he was to the Jewish people. Their response to his goodness at the time of Isaiah's ministry was that they were backslidden. The lives of the overwhelming majority of Jews in the land of Judah at that time and in the capital city of Jerusalem were marked by continual and deliberate disobedience of God's commandments. They had settled into a lifestyle of sin and rebellion against God. They lived a life of defiance against God, in defiance of his word and his commandments. Their lives were marked 
by hypocrisy. Religion was in high gear at the time. They were going to the temple. They were offering all of the sacrifices. But they were one thing in a religious environment and something else entirely within the privacy of their lives. Their lives were marked by idolatry, offering all of their praise and their worship and their time and adoration and attention to these false gods that they worshipped in private, which were merely the creation of man's hands and of man's minds. And the ancient gods, the idols of the ancient world, were essentially the deification of the lusts of the flesh. They gave themselves to what these idols represented. They gave themselves to drunkenness and to immorality. And they even went so far as to not only ignore the prophets that God sent to them to rebuke them and to call them to repentance from their sinful condition, but they then took it a step further and not only ceased to listen to them, but then verbally and physically persecuted the prophets, threatening their very lives if they didn't shut up and stop talking to them about God and their need to repent. And today, how often a Christian mother or father or sister or brother or friend can sometimes receive the same treatment when they call upon a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a friend to repent of their sins and to return to the God that they once knew and they once walked with. There's a consequence of their sin and rebellion against God and judgment for all of this because nothing else would work. God couldn't do it. He tried everything to get their attention, to turn them back to him. God then allowed King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire to come in and to conquer the land of Judah and to conquer Jerusalem. Not once but to conquer it three times. And by the time Nebuchadnezzar got through conquering the land of Judah and Jerusalem the third time, he said, I'm not coming back a fourth time. This is a man who had the greatest army in the world at the time. And he said, I'm done with these Jews. I'm done with their rebellion. And he came into the city of Jerusalem, and when he was through with it, he left virtually nothing of Jerusalem. Their wealth was gone. Their homes were gone. Their jobs, their businesses, their land was gone. And he rounded them up like cattle. He chained them like animals and carried them away as slaves to be resettled as slave labor in Babylonia, their freedom gone, thrown away for sensuality and for lies and forced to walk from the city of Jerusalem all the way to Babylon with only the clothes on their back. They were reduced to nothing, which is what sin always does in a human life. And as a result, they had been separated from Jerusalem and from the Jewish temple separated from the worship of God there, separated from the scriptures and the reading and the teaching of the scriptures in the temple, long separated, decades separated from the singing of the Psalms of Ascent as they would make their way up the various mountains that make up the city of Jerusalem as they would come to Jerusalem to honor God and to meet with God during one of the three great Uh, feasts of the Jewish religious calendar, long separated from the joy and the peace that marked their lives when they had worshipped God in spirit and in truth before they had started their backslide. And now, 
what they had once thrown away so casualty, casually in one point of time in their life. They'd thrown away a godly heritage. They'd thrown away a godly upbringing and a godly home. They'd thrown away a history, their own history, a personal history with a living God. And now, there in the captivity and the bondage of Egypt, they desperately wanted all of those things back once again. All of those things that they had thrown away on a whim in a moment of time for nothingness. Now as they sat in Babylon, those were the only things they wanted back in their life. Those were the only things that they longed for. And now though repentant, sorry for their earlier decisions and their sins and their lives, one great question dominated their minds. One great fear dominated their hearts. And the great fear was this, would God take them back? If they returned, would God have anything to do with them again? Would God give them a second chance? Was there any hope to once again enjoy the spiritual life with God that they had once known? Or were they forever and hopelessly castaways? And 150 years before all of these events occurred, before these thoughts were even in their mind, before this was a part not only of their national history, but their individual history, through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 41, God gave them his answer, his reassurance, a reassurance that applies to every backslider from God down through the ages and right into this room this morning. And God, God's answer to that man or that woman who now conscious of all they've thrown away and realizing that what they'd thrown away was the only thing that really mattered in life, now coming to their senses and wanting to return to God. And God flatly told them in verse 9, I have not cast you away. That's the best news that a man or a woman in the position of ancient Judah could have ever heard. He told them further in verse 8, You are my servant. That is, though they had been deeply disciplined for their sin, God informs them that his plans and his purposes for them and for their lives remained. There were still scriptures to be written through them as a people. There was still a Messiah to bring into human history through them. And for the repentant Christian, there's always still a will of God to be experienced before us after our return to God. A will of God despite all of our failures, all of our backslidings that God yet describes in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 that is good and acceptable and perfect. God declared further to them, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And in this, God let Israel know that they were still his choice. Why did they come back to God? They came back to God because they were chosen by God. And their desire for God, their desire to return to God, was simply evidence of his choosing. They come back because they are chosen. That is, they are truly saved. 
they truly have been born again by an incorruptible seed, as the Apostle Peter put it. Such a person may enter into a pigsty, as Peter puts it in his language. A person may leave God, know God, leave him, throw all of that heritage and all of that history away, find themselves in a pigsty and covered with all of the slop of the world. But a person who's been chosen by God, a person who's truly been born again, may visit the pigsty, but they will never stay in the pigsty. They will never live the rest of their life in the pigsty. They will never die in that condition. And the reason they will never do it is because God has chosen them. God has called them. They've really been born again by God. A true spiritual birth has occurred in their life. You are not saved on the basis of your faithfulness, but saved upon, based upon the undeserved favor and grace of God. You do not return to God from backsliding on the basis of your own goodness or faithfulness, but on the basis of his grace. Don't wait another moment. Don't wait another Sunday to come back to God. Don't wait until you feel like I've got to clean up my life for some period of time. I backslid for six months. I backslid for five years or for two years. And now for five years or two years or six months, I've got to do my penance. I have to keep a distance from God. I've got to prove to him that my heart is sincere. Somehow I've got to make myself, clean myself up enough to make myself acceptable to God. And we put these periods of weeks and days and months and even years sometimes between the moment that we want to turn back to God and the moment that we actually do because we wonder, can we come back home to God? Will he really accept us? And God says, Jacob, whom I have chosen, he's chosen you. You want to come back because he's put that want to in you. There's no reason to wait another day, not another Sunday, not another minute, not another hour. He declares further to them in verse 8 that they are the descendants of Abraham, my friend. You are the descendants, one translation puts it, of my good friend Abraham. In other words, you're the beneficiaries of my relationship with him. If they could return to God, the idea is from so deep a backslide and so deep a chastening on the basis of their relationship with their father Abraham, then what this speaks to us this morning is how much more can we return to God on the basis of our relationship with Jesus, his son. But he goes further in verse 9. And he declares, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions. In other words, God declares that even in their backslidden state, God had kept his eye upon them all of that time. They thought they were far from God. They thought that they'd run from God, that God was no longer watching them. Or if he was watching them, it was to destroy them. They had no idea of the commitment that God makes to a human being in his son. And God had watched them all along and protected them 
in that backslide, all the danger that they put themselves into, all of the various dangers that are found in all of the various sins of life. And it was he that had looked out for them and protected them in their backslidden state for those 70 years in Babylon. And he does the same in every backslider today. He's the one who kept them alive so that they could one day repent And how many people have returned to God and then they realize that they did so for the simple reason that he never let them go. And they look back into that backslide and they realize that God should have thrown me away, made a castaway of me a thousand different times in a thousand different ways, but they look back and they see that God was not only with me there, but he protected me there in that condition for the day that he knew I would repent and I would turn back to him. In other words, God was speaking to them and to us. Why would God protect you throughout all of the days and the months and the years of your backsliding and then shun you when you finally repent? It would be completely illogical, and he won't do that. It's not something that you have to worry about. He says further in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. In other words, I haven't abandoned you. He said, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. No matter where you've been or what you've done, and what anybody else thinks of you as a result of, you, of what you've done and where you've been, It doesn't matter if your name is mud now. Your name is a curse word within your family or within your neighborhood or within your city. God says no matter what anybody else thinks of you as a result of what you've been and who you've been and what you've done, he says in this, be not dismayed for I am your God. I will identify myself with you as my God, as your God. When all of the world wants nothing to do with you, wants nothing to do with your name, with your history, wants no association with you, crosses the street so they don't have to say hi to you or see your face, he says, I will never, ever shun you. I will not pretend that I'm not your God and that you are not my child. I identify myself with you and with your history in your return to me. I'll tell you, that's music to a backslider's ears. He said, further, I will strengthen you. Return to me without any thought that you can't be successful in walking this life that you once left, walking a life of holiness and Christ-likeness. I will strengthen you to do it. What bondages have you picked up in your backslide? What addictions have you picked up in your backslide? I am stronger than all of them, and I will lead you yet into the fullness of the Christian life. I will help you, he goes on to say in verse 10, and then further, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the right hand and the right arm always speaks of power in the Bible. The right arm, and of course most people in life are right-handed, they're right-armed, it's our strongest arm. And it speaks of the fact that it is, uh, when it talks about God's right hand, his right arm, it's talking about his power and his power and his presence is always the guarantee of success. 
And God is promising the backslider, I will be faithful to use all of my power to uphold you and to protect you. And that was his commitment to them. And that is his commitment to us this morning. God declares, fear not. Because while there are many fears in life, for the backslidden child of God, the greatest fear that they face when they come to their senses, and one day all of them come to their senses, is the fear of whether God will take me back, whether he will ever bless me in my life again. Will I ever know the life I once knew and once despised, but now treasure, and it's the only thing I want in life, to walk humbly and quietly and obediently with my God. But look at the links God goes to in this passage to reassure you of the reception that he will give you upon your return to him. And Jesus in the New Testament is even more reassuring to the backslider. In his parable that he spoke concerning the prodigal son, in which a son, the picture of ingratitude, takes his inheritance and leaves what he spat on in terms of life with his father and in that home and all of the blessings that he took for granted. He was smarter than everyone else, even his father. Give me my inheritance. I don't even want to wait till you die to get it. Imagine the arrogance and the pride of such a son. And the father delivered his inheritance to him and he went out and he wasted long years in sin Separated from his father, he longed to return ultimately home. Now he appreciated all that he had once had and had thrown away. But the great question in his mind is this great question that was in the mind of the children of Judah when they were leaving Babylonia and returning now to Jerusalem. He wondered if his father would have him as a son once again. And he made up the speech when he would meet his father. Listen, I'm not worthy to be even called one of your servants. I don't expect you to restore me as a son. I don't expect to ever have what I once had with you. I'll take just the relationship with you as a servant. I won't even expect the relationship of a son. And as he's working out this whole speech that he's going to give to his father, as he returns to him, he was doubtless shocked when his father, upon seeing him return from a far distance, had compassion on him, ran to him, fell on his neck, embraced him, and smothered him, in the Greek it says, with kisses. An amazing picture in the Bible. And how about you today? You're in need to return to God this morning. But you wonder, will he take you back? Will he give you another chance? Is there any hope at all that you could once again experience the spiritual life with God that you once had? 
and in your former foolishness, now a foolishness long repented of, that you could have that relationship back and all of its intimacy and life and all of its glory. And the answer is found in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. There is hope. He will take you back. He will give you another chance. That relationship that you left is waiting for you right where you left it. Don't leave here today without recommitting your life to him. And that can occur from the privacy of your seat this morning. No need to leave this room until that relationship between you and God is restored. He'll meet with you right there. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service. And you say, I'd like to do that in prayer with somebody else. And they'd love to pray with you in order to return to the Lord. The Bible says in the New Testament, it's one of the glorious verses of the New Testament, the promise to every Christian that if we confess our sin, and it's more than verbal, the word confess means to see our sin the way that God sees it. And so it is to admit wrongdoing to God, but it is also to say, God, I don't minimize my sin. I don't use this verse as a magic formula where I just come and I say, forgive me of my sin, but there's no heart connection with it. It means to see my sin the way that God sees it. And seeing my sin the way that God sees my sin, I now confess it to him. And with a reality in my heart, ask for the forgiveness of that sin. If we confess our sin, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God's invitation and that's God's promise to you. Take him up on that invitation. Receive that promise. Make that promise yours this morning. He'll never put a person in a headlock and force them to come back to him any more than he will force someone to be born again. He can make our circumstances such that we won't want to return. But he does it out of his love. God waits. He waits if you're in that place today. And he wants you to know there's hope. There's hope. He had grace to save you to begin with. And he has grace to restore you and to make you a trophy of his grace before all of the world for the rest of your life. And to produce a praise and a thanksgiving and a worship in your heart that will exist all the days of this life. I don't know how much into the life to come because I don't know how much we'll remember in the life to come. But a praise and a thanksgiving and a worship in your life toward God that might not have otherwise existed. Should we go out and backslide and get a testimony in order for that to happen? No, we shouldn't do that. All it does is testify to the power and the grace of God to work all things 
even such seasons of foolishness in our life together for good. God loves you, wants to forgive you, and wants to restore you today. Take him up on his invitation. Let's stand together and we'll pray. pray together. Lord, we would never believe it unless you told us in your book. We would never demand it. We would never expect it unless you spoke it to us right from your lips. The world doesn't operate this way. Relationships in this world don't operate this way. Lord, it's a one-strike, a two-strike, a three-strike, and you're really out everywhere in the human condition. And yet here you are, so different from the world that we live in that it can make it hard for us to actually believe that this could be true. And we pray, Lord, for the witness of your Holy Spirit upon the heart of every man and every woman for whom this message was intended today. And it wouldn't be a thing that this morning that they would just say, yes, now I believe it. But they would not stop even a step short of then stepping into the reality of it, Lord. And to make things right with you this morning, whether in the privacy of their heart, or with prayer, with somebody sitting around them, or someone who came with them today, or one of these who will gladly pray with them from the front. We pray for that work of reassurance, Lord, and that work of restoration in every heart where you see there is a need this morning. And we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What a God we serve. Amazing God. If you sit here this morning or stand now and you are not yet a Christian, you have never ever put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the most important thing you will do in life. If you don't do it, nothing else will matter in life.